You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Motivated. Sky high. Sky high. Rock steady. Rock steady. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can do it. I can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Hey, Okay, folks, that can mean only one thing, that Jody that we're playing, and it's time for David's Pick on America's Web Radio. And this is the show that's about veterans and the Georgia Military Hall of Fame. We honor them. They honor us by... uh, by sponsoring our show, and we certainly do appreciate that and uh, look forward to uh, having a, a great show on. We we've, we have uh, the retired Captain Bill Robinson on, and whoa, what is Whoa, my goodness, out of the clear blue, we had a little, little information. We'd forgotten to take the cue off, and there came... Let's talk Venezuelan, and their show doesn't start until one o'clock. So we were a little premature on that. But Bill, you're on, and uh, glad to have you with us again this morning. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here to share a few minutes with you and your your audience, and uh, and uh, uh, basically uh, promote my Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you have you your know, own Air Force. I heard the cadence there earlier, you know, I remember the cadence we knew, G.I. Beans, G.I. Gravy, G.I. Just uh, wished I'd have joined the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I tell you what, I, I can't, obviously I can't speak for you, but uh, the Jodies, uh, you know, if people haven't been in the service, they don't appreciate the value of the Jody when you're you need to go that last mile, and you need something to keep you going, and uh, and you do go, you know. And uh, that's uh, the Jody helps you get there with a smile on your face, and uh, it's uh, it's always good, always good. It's so a sense of real accomplishment, that's for sure. Yes, yes sir. What well, we want to when we were on before, we talked about your experience and uh, as a POW. Do you want to just give a, a quick? summary of that and then what i'd really like to do is get into uh one your speaking career and and the number of uh speeches you give around the country as well as then i really want to dig into your book uh the longest rescue okay uh basically you know i joined the air force in 1961 and uh i remember the song that was playing on the radio that day is goodbye cruel world goodbye i'm off to join the circus <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it pretty much uneventful well i can't say it was uneventful because i when i came into the service i was sitting around in a break room hearing the stories about the uh, uh cuban crisis and then uh of, uh of 61 when the bay of pigs and then i happened to be in the service in 62 when the Cuban Missile Crisis came around, and I was never more proud of my country as as we st- stood the Russians down, you might say, and uh, 
life went on. I was in Korea in 1963 when our president was assassinated, and I saw the strength of my country as it recovered from a devastating loss of a president. And uh, and I guess that uh, my first opportunity to vote came in the in the mail-in ring in Korea in 1963 or 64 when I had to prove who I was and got an absentee ballot and I had listened to some of the speeches over the television you know as, and I saw this one guy stand up there and said I'm going to go over there and take care of business and this other guy said I'm not going to send American boys to do what Asian boys should do for themselves and I thought that was a good plan and less than a year later I was sitting in a prisoner camp from North Vietnam and said what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you repeat that one more time? <laughs> yeah. and so you know from from Korea I went back to the States for a short period of time then came back over to Southeast Asia in 1965 and was part of a rescue team uh, at the northwest corner or, or northeast corner of Thailand called a place called NKP of course we were told we weren't there you know we couldn't identify where we were to anyone at that particular time but uh, we, our mission was uh the best to offer the best possible chance of a pilot surviving, you know. Like I said, uh, we went into the war without an airplane. We took a, an off-the-shelf, what we call LPR, local base rescue airplane type, HH-43B, and, uh, and, uh, and nicknamed for Pedro. And, and we turned it into a combat airplane with a piece of cord and steel on the pilot and the co-pilot seat. And we sat on our World War II flak vest in the back. <laughs> but we were willing to do our part for those who were going into harm's way. And we were willing to go into harm's way unarmed to bring them home or extract them from hostile territory. Oh, that's, that's uh, you basically know, uh, what we were doing today. Uh, I was scheduled at that time as a rotational basis, and I was supposed to go back home in July, but uh, I was conveniently extended. Uh, for the convenience of the government, and uh, was in, ended up being shot down on the 20th of September, 1965, and which started my 2703-day adventure uh, mm. being held by the North Vietnamese. Okay, and for, the, the, for those, uh, that... simple description was there was hours, days, weeks, months, and even years of boredom punctuated by terror. Yeah. At first, they were kind of humane, I guess, and, you know, they 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 did a few attention getters. I was lined up in front of a firing squad, and, uh, you know, blindfolded and kneeling down over a freshly dug grave, and I thought my life was over at that time. I was just a month past my 22nd birthday, but for some reason, the good Lord intervened, and, uh, you know, uh, that didn't happen, and I was convinced from that point on that I was going to survive. I didn't know how, I didn't know what the future held, but I I had trust in myself and my country, the other individuals with me, and most of all, trust in my God that I would be seen through and someday taste this thing we call freedom. You know, for those that don't know it, uh, H-41 is a Huey, right? No, sir. It's a... It's a, it's a, uh, it's nickname is Pedro. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a double, double, um, bladed airplane that was designed strictly for rescue. It was first used by the Navy and 
in the 58 and 59, and then the Air Force bought it when they, uh, I, I guess, it's, it's pre-four-wheel drives, you know, just to an, an airplane never crashed on the runway, it run off the runway, well, the fire trucks couldn't get off the runway to get to the airplane, and they came up with this uh, airplane, and what they were, they had a, a fire suppression kit and two firemen on board, and they would chase the airplane down the runway, and when it rolled down the runway, they'd get as close as good, drop the fire bottle off, and then back up and drop two, two firemen off, and they'd go in and, and uh, with the help of the blades, fighting back the uh, smoke to get in and retrieve the pilot, uh, the crew members or pilot, you know, as, as whichever the case may be, and it, and it it improved the survival rate once an airplane exited the runway in a, in a mud field, but now pretty much they've been replaced with all-wheel drive type fire trucks and et cetera that can just about go over any terrain, and so, you know, they uh, are now have been replaced. Uh, the proudest part we have of the H-43 was that uh, in, in Afghanistan today, all rescue missions are, are flown with the call sign Pedro. Hmm. In our honor, you know, and so it's coming, humming to recognize, uh, see that someone recognizes. We were eventually replaced with what was referred to as the Jolly Green Jack, and we, we 43 guys, refer to ourselves as pre green. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so it was a fixed wing. And, no, uh, it's, a, it's a helicopter. It's a helicopter? Okay. So would it's you... a plen- twin bladed helicopter. Looks. Looks like an egg beater upside down. Okay, okay. Now I know which one you're talking about. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I should have checked that out before. But okay, so uh, would you consider yourself? Uh, did you carry any medical uh, personnel with you? We had a uh, PJ, a paramedic, on board that was uh, in. Uh, he was with us in case he needed any medical attention and we like I said we flew with a pilot co-pilot the crew chief flash flight engineer and a and a paramedic okay he was so. capable we could let him down on a horse if needed to be and uh other and assist the pilot and bring him back up or we would just uh, you know like i said he would assist him once we got him in the airplane so you you all would you have considered yourself a dust-off at that point, or was that strictly titled to the Huey? Well, that was basically, uh, you know, like I said, that was a South Vietnam term. You know, I jokingly say that I didn't make it to South, South Vietnam until 2015, you know, <laughs> years after the war. I was flying out of Thailand, and we were, uh, we had the uh, southern part of North Vietnam. We were we had the capability of fuel range probably to get within 40 miles of Hanoi, but, uh, and then the Navy took care of the coastal region, and, of course, then they had the uh, 43s and, you know, and the Army in, in, in South Vietnam that uh, pretty well took care of that. We were just mostly in Laos and in North Vietnam. Oh, well, we never went to Laos, did we? Oh, yeah, I heard that one time. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and we wonder what's wrong today, huh? <laughs> well, we were we were seven miles from the Laotian border. I, I guess we were just sun there sunbathing. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, maybe you did some of that, but I I don't know 
how much of that you really did. But, okay, so you came home, and uh, what was your reception like when you came home? Well, I got a hero's welcome that belonged to somebody else, and that was the humbling part. In other words, that when we first came home, I was in the first group that uh, landed uh, in... Uh, um, we represented, I think, an end of something that everyone has been longing for for a long time. And and so uh, if they had to give us a hero's welcome to get the whole thing over with, then, but, you know, to me, uh, we were we were brought in under light, I mean, under, under daylight, you know, where the guys that came back from, and girls that came back from Vietnam were brought in in the middle of the night. And, you know, and... Uh, I got proudly wearing my uniform all the way across country where they were told to remove theirs as not to offend anyone. And yeah. so that has been my goal is to make sure that those who serviced and sacrificed never are forgotten. They were the real heroes. They're the ones that went over and experienced the burden and they came under, came home under the, under darkness so as not to offend anyone. That's a, and, uh, you know, that I'm always been humbled that, uh, you know, they did not get their proper recognition, and the recognition I got belonged to them, not me. And, uh, you know, and, and I always say that to me that the saddest moment in American history in my lifetime was when we forgave those who ran before we as a nation stood up and said thank you to those who served. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you were you at the Hilton? Most of the time I was at the Hilton. Hilton in the beginning was uh, when our numbers were small, and I was, I was about the 20th shootout, even though I was, I, I'm, my, myself and Neil Black are classified as the longest held enlisted POWs in American history. Uh, there were about 20 or 21 officers who were shot down ahead of us. And uh, and so uh, our numbers are small in that time, and and then as things picked up, like I said, by September there was about twenty four of us. By the end of September and by the end of December there was sixty two. So we had a rapid expansion at that particular time, and uh, they created a new camp about uh, a mile and a half from the Hilton called the Zoo, and we were. Some of us were moved into there, and then as our numbers continued to group, a group of us was moved up about 40 miles from Hanoi to a camp called uh, the Bry Patch, where we first experienced uh, horrible physical, mental, and any kind of abuse you could think of. It. Uh, uh, we were living in the conditions of no running water, no electricity, and uh, you know we were uh, basically hogtied during the day if we weren't being beaten and uh, and uh, and we stayed up there until the, the health uh, our health started to fail and then brought us back down to the zoo and of course they created what was part of the zoo what they call the zoo annex which is a uh, a series right I mean it's just a, just a wall between the, the zoo the zoo was a an old French studio and uh, it was kind of kind of interesting they had us had an old swimming pool inside of it you know and it's kind of interesting 
how life can be. You know, that we're bumping our bow buckets, our bathrooms, and one end of the pool, and they were dipping our drinking water out of the other. Mm. Okay. <laughs> but uh, somehow we survived it. And, and, uh, and then we basically, uh, like I said, when Johnson stopped the bombing in 1968, and we were essentially cut off from the outside world for nearly three years, uh, and uh, and then we didn't know anything, and um, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden the, the Sante raid happened. We didn't know exactly what was going on at that particular point, but it was a, a lifesaver as far as I'm concerned. You know that uh, even though they didn't rescue a single one, it made the uh, under the Johnson administration we had we had been labeled even by our. Um, Defense Department, Robert McNamara, said in January 1966 that the POWs were expendable. And, uh, you know, that didn't go over well with our families as, a, as a, their their loved ones were sent into harm's way and then labeled expendable by our own government. Hmm. And, and after the election, uh, actually POW families were, for the first time, invited to the White House to meet with the president and he briefed them on what he was doing. In fact, he encouraged them or made arrangements for families to go to the Paris Peace Talks and put a face on prisoners of war. And for the first time, we got some aggression issue. And, uh, and the next thing that happened was when President Nixon had the opportunity, he supported the Sante Raid, and uh, where they believed they could extract some prisoners from a Camp, much like the broad patch I had been in, but it was a, in the, about the same distance in a different direction than we were. And uh, they went in and they had a successful mission, but no, recovered no one. But as a result of that, the Vietnamese changed our label from expendable to high value. And that was the first time we moved into groups. Hmm. Up to that point, many of us had spent as much as... Uh, six to eight months in solitary, which some guys had spent over four years in solitary confinement. Wow. But because of this situation, the uh, the fear of Nixon coming back, they cleaned out the Hilton, which was being used to house political prisoners, and inside it was a female prison. And they brought us back and uh, put us in, in a, kind of a compound living where there was at least 40 people in a room uh, in... Uh, in, in different areas there of what we call Camp Unity. And for the first time, like I said, some of those guys had, had not seen another American for nearly four years. Wow. They had tapped through the wall, but as far as seeing and shaking hands or smiling at another American, that had not been in over four years. Okay, when you said part of that is a second ago you said female prison, were they Vietnamese females or American females? Yes, they females? were Vietnamese. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, we, we didn't have, uh, there was only one, as I know of, female prisoner. There was a, a German nurse that was captured in South Vietnam, and she was brought up north. There were more, there were, I believe, somewhere around six females that were captured during the Vietnam War. Most of them were civilians, and they died on the trail along with many others. 
being transported to North Vietnam due to the horrible conditions. You know, I, I couldn't imagine someone having to, to walk 1,500 miles like some of them did with their arms tied behind them, blindfolded, and mm. and being treated like wild animals. And But uh, she was the only one that uh, basically survived. Uh, there's some stories uh, that's just unbelievable uh, about the the courage of these nurses and uh, uh, social workers that were there that died in the arms of American soldiers as as they were being transported north due to the horrifying living conditions. Mm-hmm. I always say that I was enjoying luxury accommodations up north com- compared to my brothers and sisters that were being held in South Vietnam, and eventually some of them made it. Uh, to North Vietnam, I think there was probably over half of the ones that were captured in the South eventually after, some of them said it's been almost a year traveling, end up in the prison camps in North Vietnam, but they were completely isolated from us, and we didn't know of them until basically we came home. Bill, we need to take a quick break, and uh, I'm going to do live breaks uh, during this show today. Um And uh, that being that uh, North Georgia and Georgia in general has come up to the plate because of veterans, and we have probably one of the states that honors veterans more than any other state in the Union. And we have the, uh, because of Paul Ungrier and uh, Rick White, Rick is a retired colonel, and uh, Rick does a fantastic job as the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, of which you're part of. You've been inducted. And uh, we also have Johns Creek that's taken the Vietnam veteran, the 50% size of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. The one that's in Johns Creek traveled all over the United States for many years, and then Johns Creek, Georgia, bought it. And uh, they've given it a permanent home in Newtown Park. And then we have uh, we also have um, Peachtree Corners that has a memorial to uh, the Vietnam veterans. All of these, if you live in Atlanta or live around Atlanta, or you're coming from out of town to visit Atlanta for some reason, uh, see family, whatever, be sure and put these locations on your tour plans. You'll get more out of them than you can ever imagine. So with that, you're listening to America's Web Radio, and we're glad to have you listening. And our guest today is Bill Captain Retired Bill Robinson. And uh, you started out as like I did, as a grunt, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, I spent uh, uh, 12 years as an enlisted member, and my last seven, 11 years I spent as a commission officer. And uh, you got your commission when you came back from uh, Vietnam, and uh, yes, sir. Uh, oh, you don't have to. You don't have to. I was just an E five, so you don't have to say yes sir to me. I have to say <laughs> it to you. But you know, well, we all have great respect for each other. For those of us who have worn a uniform, who have answered the call of our country, and whether we're in a harm's way or whether we're supporting those in harm's way or whether we were in in peacetime we took up the most important cause in america today and that was to stand
stand ready to defend her against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Amen. Uh, you know, this, uh, this yeah, is I, something... I went through, um, you know, um, when I, we moved into a larger group, we were about nine of us together, and we started sharing stories uh, of our, our experience, and, uh, and some of the guys said, you know, you guys deserve something for what you're... The example you have laid for the rest of us, I was an E-4 when I was shot down, and uh, um, uh, Neil Black was a E-2, and uh, Art Cormier was a E-5. So anyway, they came up with the idea, and they said that, you know, we'd like to uh, offer you guys a commission. And so they went through all the proper channels in our, you know, <clears throat> through the tap in different rooms from ISRO to the compound SRO to the building SROs and you know and went through the chain of command and and he got approval all the way up to General Flynn or he was actually a colonel at shoot down and he said it was a good idea and, and he, he sanctioned it and then and then he sent back a message congratulating the three of us for being commissioned and approving it, and then he said, oh, by the way, you need to get it OTS. So we went through OTS in the prison camp. So <laughs> <laughs> I jokingly say we rode on the back of a shovel with a with a piece of chalk that fell off the roof, you know, clay, clay tile. But we, we shared experiences. We had uh, direct uh, communication with two Air Force Academy graduates and two Naval Academy graduates plus the inputs from all the other officers in the neighborhood as to what we should be or shouldn't be considered as officer know-how. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we went through an, almost a year of, uh, you know, constantly discussing military history, Air Force history, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and uh, so, you know, it's how we get a kick out of telling people when I've been to the Navy uh, birthdays, the Army birthdays, the Air and the, and the uh, Marine Corps birthdays, and the Coast Guards, and I always remind them uh, their services is much older than ours, but at least I'm older than my service. In other words, I was born in 43, and the Air Force wasn't created until 47. So none of them could claim that. So, <laughs> so I, my claim to fame is I'm older than the Air Force. Well, let, let me ask you something. I, I think I did the first time we uh, visited together, but uh, can you name one veteran that can only tell one story? No, sir. You know, every day is, is an adventure, whether you spend one year, two years, ten years, or forty years. It's, it, 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 you don't get up to the same thing every day. You know, I think that's what makes the military interesting. It is, you know, jokingly, we, we always said if you hadn't heard a rumor by 8 o'clock, you were supposed to start one. You know? <laughs> oh, we're getting out tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do want to take this opportunity to, um, for the parents and grandparents, and we may even have a couple of young folks listening that uh, the military today, if you're graduating from high school and you don't want to go to college or you don't know what you want to do, or if you're just now grad if you're graduating from college and don't know what you want to do, please, 
please take a look at the military. It ha- offers more opportunities than any other industry in the world. And um, you can do so many things in the military, and whether it's it's Air Force, Army, Navy, whatever it is, whatever your interests are as well, and you can get, um, you know, your assignment. You can... It, it just it's just the place to look and we encourage any and every young person to do it be you female or be you male uh, just take a look at the military and what you want to do and how it can fit into your plans for your future and I don't think there's a better place to look than the military after you graduate from high school or from college so back to you bill and uh, yes I, I want to Amplifying just what you said, you know, is that is that the military is uh, it's it's not the same one your grandfather joined, but it's it's still a um, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, you know, I've heard all the stories about seeing the world through a porthole, but really, you 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 get out and see and you understand. Uh, you know, I. I think the best leaders of this country, whether they be local or whether they be at the county or state level, are people that have been there, done that, and have the T-shirt. Yes, sir. And they have a broader understanding, uh, you know, of, of what the world is all about. I know we can read a lot from the textbooks, but the textbooks have written, been rewritten so much that I don't even recognize the history I'm a part of, <laughs> uh, as far as trying to tell the truth. Yep. And, and uh, it, it says, I, I guess that I see that basically what we've done today is we've, uh, you know, uh, we used to call it tough skin when I was growing up. Now they call it sensitivity training. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But you know, it's uh, it's a. Uh, to me, I, I was very fortunate. I grew up with a patriotic group. You know, my my dad, my uncles, my senior cousins all have served in the military, and they conditioned me at a, either at a younger age that someday I would be called upon to give back for what I have been so richly blessed with. And unfortunately, we we have to encourage people right now when you realize that uh, you know when you think about World War II with 100% participation with with the food on the table being rationed uh, Korea was a 30% participation or basically or Vietnam was a 10% participation and now we're up to less than 1% participation in the defense of our nation and to supporting of our allies throughout the world so it is, you know, it, and I, I can explain some of that in the sense that a B-17 had a crew of 10, a flight of B-17s with 180 airplanes. That's, that's well over 2,000 people in the air. Then you got that many more on the ground supporting that. One B-52 can carry as much as uh, 10 B-17s. And it has a crew now. It used to be a crew of five. Now it's a crew of four. So we have, through technology, uh, done a better job. And then now we have the smart bomb. Smart bomb, you know, it can pinpoint a bomb. You know, they could take out uh, half of an apartment building and, and not touch the other half, you know. And so 
technology has played an important part, and that's the opportunities that's available for young people today to be a part of that ever-improving and minimizing the men and women on the battlefield. And uh, we're, it's not like we're, we're going to take this hill over here. Like right now, we just remove the hill and move on. <laughs> that's right. But, and, you know, uh, when you think about World War II, the guys would may march for six weeks and then go into battle. Mm-hmm. But Vietnam was the first time that uh, a person there for 13 months saw an average of over 260 days of combat in their tour. Whereas, uh, it, you know, it's uh, uh, in World War II in Korea, they, they may be marching for, you know, half of their tour. But unfortunately, uh, you know, yeah. difference in World War II and in Korea, they were there for the duration, and where we were rotated in and out, kind of like what we're doing now, you know. And so, uh, right. you know, the war is not up close and personal yeah. as, well, as it used to be. I want to take uh, one moment, Bill, to uh, mention this and uh, enlist everyone that, uh, particularly veterans, but anyone that's listening to. Uh, say a, a little prayer for my my best friend and um, he and I were roommates in college together then he went to Vietnam and then when he came back uh, we can both continued our education and, and were roommates and uh, right as we speak he is suffering his cancer from Agent Orange and uh He's in the, he's literally right at this moment in the process of having much, if not all, of his tongue removed because he had cancer from being sprayed with Agent Orange in Vietnam. And uh, his recovery looks pretty, his prognosis is pretty good, and uh, they will be rebuilding his tongue, which I didn't know, <laughs> I had no clue they could do that, but... Uh, uh, he's going through surgery as we speak, and I want, you know, I want to enlist any and everybody that is listening to uh, pray for my best friend J. Roy, and uh, he's a good Texan. He, he was a Golden Gloves champion of Texas at one time, and uh, he's just a good man, and he served his country very, very well. And these are the stories that you know, Vietnam has had a lasting results on so many veterans, be it from limbs and just like with the IEDs in the Middle East, um, some scars you just can't get away from. And, uh, you know, uh, J-Roy has suffered uh, diabetes and cancer because of Agent Orange. And uh, so... I'm soliciting any and everybody that's listening and listens to the podcast to say a little prayer for him, and I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, it's it's sad that uh, it's taken the government so long to recognize the Agent Orange policy. You know, it's a sad point that uh, we have so many veterans out there suffering uh, from this disease. You know, I'm a a fear of it because I flew on airplanes that were known to be carrying Agent Orange, but uh, luckily for me that uh, I have been, you know, cancer-free all these times, and, uh, you know, but I do have friends that have experienced it, and uh, 
some uh, are up above looking down at us, and some, so many of them have recovered. Well, I, I want uh, to say I one encourage other thing, Bill. I want to, Bill, excuse me, but to, to support uh, our men and women that are fighting this battle, not mm-hmm. only as a health issue, but with the government well, because they haven't come up with a confirmed diagnosis, you might say, uh, is like in my case, uh, uh, all the things that you mentioned that Agent Orange are presumptive as a prisoner of war, but the word Agent Orange is never mentioned. Well, I want to say one other thing in our political season that we're in right now, and that's a big thank you to our president, President Trump, who signed into law the Blue Water Bill, and this was... Uh, I believe the uh, in December of last year, it's almost uh, been in effect for a year now, but the Blue Water Bill was for many, many, many years, well, since Vietnam, uh, the Navy and the people that were serving in the Navy and Coast Guard were not eligible for Agent Orange treatment because, well, how could you get Agent Orange if you weren't on the ground? Well, those boats that were just off the coast of of uh, Vietnam or anchored in Vietnam or whatever the situation was, they got sprayed just like the troops on the ground did. And they suffered for years with Agent Orange and never got anything from the government. But since President Trump signed the bill, it's called the Blue Water Bill, and... Uh, I think he was great to do it, and I certainly support his action in doing it, as well as the people that advocated and solicited his support to get a bill signed where the Navy and Coast Guard, and people don't realize the role that the Coast Guard played in Vietnam. They were very active there. And uh, so anyway, I I salute our Commander-in-Chief for doing the right thing, which Many other presidents before them didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stand up to the plate and do what he did. Yeah, the, one of the things that we have track here for life, and a lot of people don't know, that the that was spearheaded by Colonel Bud Day, Medal of Honor recipient from Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Bud took it all the way to the Supreme Court fighting for what we call TRICARE for Life. And uh, the promises that the government made and said they never put on paper. You see, a lot of, up until TRICARE for Life, the guy when he turned 65, and he was he was uh, basically uh, on his he was own. told that drugs that he needed were no longer available at the base hospital because they were cutting costs. And, they, and I, I knew friends that went from, you know, uh, getting in medicine that needed to a $700 a month uh, medical bill as a result of the way that we were treated by the previous administrations. But Bud fought all the way to the Supreme Court and won what we now refer to as a tri-care life with a bunch of, bunch of sergeants there in Fort Wallen Beach who came in and manned the phones and did all the paperwork and all the legwork and uh, supported uh, or what we now know is TRICARE for Life. And uh, we can give a 
former prisoner of war attorney, Medal of Honor recipient. He took the fight all the way to the Supreme Court and won for that's, our veterans. You know, and, and that's the way it should be. And, and, you know, you mentioned something that just literally brings tears to my eyes. And I, I hate when I hear it, but I know it's the truth. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we, we've become a, a country of fake news and everything else. But the fact that TRICARE for Life is so important and so it's wonderful. And when you think that 1% of the country, and you said in Vietnam it was 10%, I believe you said, but when you have only 1% that will raise their right hand for the most wonderful country in the world, that's deplorable. And for all of the people that didn't serve, I hope you have a hard time when you shave in the morning or looking at yourself in the mirror. And I was no hero. I did not go to Vietnam, nor do I ever claim that I did. But I did, as they call us now, we were Vietnam veteran eras, Vietnam era. And uh, as I've kidded, the way my case is, my 201 file says Vietnam veteran E-R-R-O-R, not E-R-A, but, you know, I did put in my six years. And um, Well, it's again... Well, there should never be any difference. A veteran is a veteran. He served his country, he or she, when called upon. And to me, to distinguish between, because we had more than one front. I mean, there was more than Vietnam going on during that period of time. So we had troops in Europe. We had troops all over the world. And we had troops in the embassies all over the world, you know, that were serving their country with honor. And they uh, were in support of us, in those of us who were quite, and, and we're all, if we want to use the word hero, we're all heroes, because we are that 1% that stood up and said, like my World War II guys, and uh, they, they stood up at after Pearl Harbor and stood up and said, take me, I want to defend America. Mm-hmm. And all of us that have worn that uniform, our purpose was to defend America and our allies, and we did it in an honorable fashion. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I... I look at World War II. My my father was in the Navy, and he's I I I, ha, I thought I'd see more of this after uh, after the World Trade Center's after nine eleven. But there was some of it, but not. My dad, December the eighth of when after uh, Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. On December the 8th, my dad put up his successful business in Brownfield, Texas. He owned Terry County Lumberyard, and uh, he put it up for sale, sold it for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar, and joined the Navy, and uh, served his six years in the Navy, and uh, I, I was always proud of what my dad did, and and uh, we saw some of that in 9/11, but not 
not the amount that I would have liked to have seen or, or thought we'd see, but uh, we are, uh, we may bend, but we don't break. And uh, Well, you know, that's, that's one of the great things about America. You know, we're just ordinary people uh, delivering extraordinary circumstances. We, yes, we stand together, we stand up as one. Yes, I, I wish that we could get more young people, uh, but it starts at home. And I was, uh, it, it, they got to have the proper training at home to realize that this world is not a free ride. True. And it's, and it's not as sad that we use, it's not your fault more than we use, it's your responsibility. All right. Well, I tell you, I, I've been blessed to have a number of, or I say a number, a couple of the gentlemen on that are very active, and they're the commanders of the the junior ROTC. And uh, I've kidded them about the programs that they run, and I I said, you know, can even though I've got my degree, do you mind if I come back and go back through high school? Because the programs that you all are running now are just they're fantastic. And they, they give uh, they give young people a chance to understand understand the point uh, you know it's like some of this crap that's going on in Portland and Seattle and so forth you know there's one word that I think every branch of the military honors and proves day in and day out and we wouldn't have the stuff in Portland and Seattle, in my opinion, if this one word were put into effect. And, and the teaching in all branches of the military is the word discipline. From getting up in the morning and making your bunk to making the way your you're... Yep. And uh, it, it, we all need discipline. And uh, yeah. if those creeps out in California and Seattle were to be disciplined, it'd be a different tune today. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I like to, you know, we have the six uh, articles, Code of Conduct, and I I like to, you know, quote number six, which is, I will never forget that I am an American, responsible for my action, dedicated to make my country free. I will trust in my God and the United States of America. That well, kind of summarizes where we are. We are responsible for our action. And in being a good citizen, we have to be able to uh, live up to that. Bill, that's I know it's just like we, we lived under the motto, return with honor. Mm-hmm. But we always said in many ways, you never give up, you never give in, you roll with the punches, you bounce back, get ready for the next round. I was jokingly telling somebody the other day, I said, you know, they tried to beat this thing called socialism, communism into us, and now we got people serving Kool-Aid on the side of the road and people are drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> it's frightening. You know, when I, and this is something that if you go to my website or you go to any of the Twitters or Facebook or whatever, when I was growing up, from elementary school on through college, 
we were taught socialism is one step away from communism. And uh, all you have to do is look at, at Venezuela right now. They started out with socialism, and now it's a communist country. And this is where the Democrats are wanting to take us. And they're going to get a fight. They're not going to just take over. And uh, we're not going to give in, particularly the veterans, we're not going to give in to uh, socialism by any stretch. Um, I, I certainly believe in a helping hand, but I don't believe in a way of life. Here you have to take some responsibility. But we need a, a hand up, not a hand out. Yes, sir. You, I, I, I couldn't have said it better. And uh, just the quote that you made a second ago, uh, it was just beautiful. Uh, and I, you know, if you don't live for something, then you, you are nothing, in my opinion. And uh, there's nothing better than to live for uh, the United States and... Um, uh, you know, no greater love hath man than to lay down his life for a friend. And, uh, well, that's that's what I have, you know, and like I said, I tell people how fortunate I am. It's basically on panel 2 West, line 191 is my co-pilot. So that's how close I came to the wall. Mm. Just around the corner on the other turn of the wall I forget the panel but it's the last panel there's a young man named Walter Ferguson he gave his life for the freedoms that I enjoy today he was one of the he was the first guy shot down in linebacker 2 in 1972 and killed Hmm. he was a month from retirement but rather than to go home and retire he wanted to bring his brothers home and so we honor people like that who made the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we all enjoy today without their sacrifices and simply put without veterans there would be no United States of America so well put, Bill. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, it's the words that you just said, I understood every one of them. You didn't throw in some $5 word that nobody understands. And what I can't understand is why kids and some parents today don't appreciate what we have, what we've gone through, and what our veterans have preserved for us. Yeah, it's kind of, I always say that uh, there was two people back in the 50s. There was uh, Adlai Stevenson, who ran on, on the Democratic Party as yeah. a president. They asked him, said, how come you lose such large words? He said, I speak not only to be understood, but not to be misunderstood. They asked Douglas MacArthur and asked him, says, why come you use so many small words? He said, I not only speak to be understood, but not to be misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we take it in, in uh, complex ways either, either way. You know, is, uh, you know we, we try to keep it in simple form. You know, I, I heard one time that, uh, you know, I read 
something that Napoleon, whenever he wrote an order, he would he had a moron and he 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 would ask him to read it and and tell him what he said and he said he Napoleon would sit there and rewrite it until the that he could tell him what he was trying to say, and uh, then he would send the order out. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but, you know, it makes a good story anyway. <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I we've got to talk about your book, uh, The Longest Rescue. And did, did you have in mind, as you were in uh, uh, your pleasure uh, ride in uh, the Hanoi Hilton, did you say, okay, when I get out of this, I'm going to write a book? Or when did it come to you that I'm going to tell my story? Well, it was long past the war. I, I guess it's, uh, you know, I'd sit down after some of the other guys had written books, and I'd sit down and write a few things, and then I'd, I'd get writer's cramps after the first page. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and I really honestly thought, Nobody cares, you know. They're too busy with their life to care, you know. And uh, and uh, I was visiting the Andersonville Museum down there, and I uh, one of the rangers down there, and she listened to me and uh, give talks to different people coming through the park, and she said, "You know, you need to write a book." I said, "About what?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, I said, I don't know if I think I have a story, you know, and she said, I think you do. And she hooked me up with Dr. Robbins, and Dr. Robbins, and uh, he was a history professor, mostly dealt in Civil War between, uh, they were courting at the time, you might say, or, and they ended up married, but the, uh, she kept saying, you, you need to write this book. And you need to interview, you know, and and so we sat down and and we we sat there and for a long while and and uh, so he 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 finally agreed to to write the book and uh, you know and he takes it from a history angle which is uh, important. In other words, I I jokingly say my my book is the is the Forrest Gump book of Vietnam. In other <laughs> words, he he wanted it to be factual. Uh, not only what I said, but what what was going on at that particular time, and so he made it so it can be used as a reference material. And 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 it then this story of essentially never giving up. You know, uh, you know there was uh, you know they, we always hear the stories about the people that give up. We don't hear a lot of uh, about the stories of people that don't give up. You know, and uh, you know and. Uh, and it's, uh, I've, I've talked to people that some have said they've read my book at least three times is that they find something different each time. I said, well, each time I speak, I say something a little different. I say, you know, I'm trying to cram seven and a half years into, into 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you got a lot of material to work with. And so, you know, it was the, you know, it's just, just the kind of trying to in, inspire people that, uh, uh, you know, okay, life is, is just not a way to give up. Life right. is, you know, that's, I have a difficulty today dealing with the, uh, you know, the PTSD, you know, and I want to help, but I don't know how because I've just never, you know, uh, thought about anything except life. Right. You know, I, you know, I, 
and uh, so it's it's difficult to you know uh, deal okay. with that. Well, know, Bill, let me ask you, you your title, the longest rescue, and yet you weren't rescued. You were released when everybody else was released, correct? Right. So well, how did you come up with the title? Uh, well, it's it's. We considered the long rescue because the the guy we were trying to rescue, we walked out with seven and a half years later. <laughs> we, we didn't give him that fancy ride and the cold beer and the and the pat on the back and send him back to work, but we we did get to come home and have a cold beer with him and say, "Now let's let's go on with our life." You know? uh, I bet you all were sharing the same shirt, weren't you? <laughs> Pardon me. I bet you all were sharing the same shirt, weren't you? Yeah, you. <laughs> but, but yeah, we, you know, like I said, that uh, that's some of the things, and then some of the things after in my own life, you know, and you know, like I said, it took me fifty-one years to get my marriage right, and so you know, so we we have the ups and downs through our own life, you know, and, sure. and like I said, I I get up in the morning counting my blessings, not my misfortunes, you know. Is uh, yes, sir. I'm like the young. Young boy out there fishing. Somebody come by and said, "Son, how many fish you caught?" He said, "If I get this one and five more, I'll have six. So you, <laughs> you just keep trying." Optimism, That's- Bill. With that bit of information, we're going to have to wrap it up. And uh, thank you once again for being on America's Web Radio and David's Pick. And uh, thank Rick White and uh, all of the folks that support and I have been inducted into the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Please go, if you're listening, please take an opportunity to go to it. Also, John's Creek Healing Wall and um, Peachtree Corners Memorial to the Vietnam Veterans. And again, once again, thank you for your service, Bill, and for what you endured so we could all be free. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.